Anyone try the chalk? Who tried the chalk? Anyone? Any chalkers out there? How many rooms? Two doors. We we went internal. We went internal. Yeah, it got it got serious. Yeah, you know, that's the, the more blessings you have, the the better Christian you you are. Exactly. There we go. That's because Polly got excited about it. So, could you ring the bell, Rich? Could someone ring the bell? The boxing ring, ring. Thank you so much. Okay, I know some people are still getting their their coffee, but any other? Um, this is the art department at Wheaton College. We decided to go for the the 2017 blessing, and um, it was it was cleaned off by the custodial staff. So we had to we had to write a message that says, "Please don't erase. This is not graffiti. This is an epiphany blessing." So. But maybe one day when it's so axiomatic that of course you bless your home, we'll be able to tell stories about back when people didn't realize that this was something that you did. So we're recovering this. I am uh, re- reveling in this season. I hope you are as well. Did anyone else have any uh, chalk experiences? Did everyone give it a try? We, I mean, it's nice. There's still some chalk out there. It's not too late. We're still radiating an epiphany. Did it work? That's the problem. We decided go rogue. I mean, find surfaces that work. Well, if it's the brick, if it's the side of the house, whatever it, whatever, whatever it is. And it's a reminder. It's almost like that Passover reminder. You are part of the nations that are reveling in the lordship of Christ, which is what this building is about, which is what we are about. And that's the epiphany. Yes, pardon me? Driveway. You went on the driveway. Nice move. Let's go. Yeah, you can really. Well, there's a lot of chalk. There was a lot of chalk in those bags, so you, you had you had to work on it. And, I mean, we did rooms, a couple of different rooms, which was nice. The kids really liked that. So this, and let that be a reminder to enjoy this Epiphany season. Radiate in the light of Christ, and our homes are set apart. So we are briefly going to talk about Candlemas. Because this time next year we have, I mean, this, next week we have an annual meeting. And let's mention this a little bit. It's another one of those seasons that is awaiting recovery. That is to be uncovered. It has been over-earthed for so long. It's celebrated on February 2nd. And here are our wonderful Anglican graphics again. We are going to celebrate it here with a dinner and a relaxed celebration. And... If you are, if you got the coin and the king cake, pardon me, I'm sorry, thank you, the baby, the baby and the king cake. If you got that, that is your invitation to bring some cookies as well. So that's one of the, the concealed rewards that when you get the reward is that you bring treats for us. So keep that in mind. We're not going to kind of hold you to it, if, if, but it would be wonderful if you would, were to fulfill that tradition because this is a time of bringing one another into your homes. That's why that blessing is there, to remember that other people come in. And there are all kinds of gatherings like that going on throughout our church. Stay tuned for those. But this one in particular is one to think about. Now, why February 2nd? What is the Feast of the Presentation slash Candlemas? A little background here might be helpful. So, it's the 40th traditional day of the Christmas and Epiphany season. And according to Jewish law, which Luke lays down really clearly so we know what's going on, Mary has to be purified 
because she has given birth, according to tradition, and she arrives at the temple on this particular day, February 2nd. This is not a newfangled church celebration. It goes all the way back to the 4th century in Jerusalem. This is one of the Marian feasts that Martin Luther said, why would you get rid of that one? It's in the Bible. But we got rid of it anyway, and we forgot it as Protestants. But February 2nd is this classic early Christian feast. Images of Candlemas abound in Orthodox churches such as Hosios Lucas, the beautiful mosaics there, and one of the squinches you see Mary delivering Jesus to, of course, the high priest, according to tradition. He may not have been a high priest, but that's how the Byzantine tradition understood him, to Simeon. And there's Joseph, again, sitting in the back, not doing anything. He's not too involved in this, but he, of course, has to show up as well. She's offering him to Simeon, and there is Anna, of course, as well, who was waiting for this moment. We echo that in our church behind the screen here with the, you can see the fake and the original back there, of Mary holding the turtle doves, which would have been their offering because they're poor. They can't afford the big-time luxury offering. They can only afford the small one. More icons of the Candlemas. I know they're hard to see back there, but this is a miniature of the same thing. And I love this one. Jesus is kind of terrified in this one, and he's squirming in her hands. Basically, the iconographical tradition is a tug-of-war between Simeon and Mary. Sometimes Simeon holds him, sometimes Mary holds him, kind of like, ooh. And sometimes Jesus is confident, sometimes he's afraid, because this is another, just like the Feast of the Circumcision, where Jesus bleeds. In the same way, this is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. He is an offering. He's the offering. And Mary, weirdly kind of interesting in the tradition, makes her the offerer. (laughs) Really curious, forgotten tradition in the history of the church. And, of course, this is where Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce your heart, too. And that's seen as one of those deeply resonant understandings of the cross. There's Joseph. In this case, he's holding the turtle doves. And I like to sometimes switch them out with the groundhogs. And that, that is the origin. That is why Punxsutawney has that Groundhog Day Festival. It is a great crime in my education that no one ever explained this deep background to me. I only heard about the groundhogs. There's an English proverb, if Candlemas Day be fair and bright, winter will have another fight. If Candlemas Day brings cloud and rain, winter won't come again. Now, I learned about this as the groundhog sees its shadow, but there is a German lore tradition where a badger or a sacred bear peeps out of his hole on Candlemas Day, and if he finds snow, he walks abroad. If he sees the sun, he goes back into his hole. That's where the groundhog, that's the distant echo because of the German immigrants to Pennsylvania. And so the deep, rich background of this, of Groundhog Day, goes to our Candlemas celebrations. There's another feature as well to keep in mind. Remember, we already talked about how our sun god that is celebrated in an attempt to repaganize Rome, the sun god is emphasized in the 270s, and the Christians are like, oh, we'll tell you about the sun god, but the son of God, and he's brighter than this star. And this is Christmas co-opting this pagan festival. 
Remember, with the mosaic of Jesus as Apollo below St. Peter's, Jesus as the Son in disguise, stealing the thunder from the pagans, and we saw how Aeon, the pagan god of time, and it's interesting that he drew water from the Nile and it would presumably turn into wine and the Egyptian um, pagans would reenact the ceremony during the time of Aeon in January 5th and 6th. That is why we talk about the (laughs) feast at Cana in this time of the year. That's why it shows up in the lectionary. He's the real God who will turn people into wine. This is not a paganization of Christianity. This is a Christianizing of paganism. And that's why we saw Jesus surrounded by the signs of the zodiac. Because this certainly can be done. Don't give it to Aeon. He's the one, Jesus, who is the Lord of time. And it's no different with Candlemas as well. Perhaps one of the reasons that this takes off is there's Imbolg, a.k.a. St. Bridget's Day, a Gaelic festival that marks the start of spring on February 1st. Now, we are feeling that this weekend. And that's not new. Around this time, you get hope that we might be getting out of this winter. And this is right between the winter solstice, December 21st and 22nd, and the spring equinox, March 20th and 21st. So you need some hope. And so Imbolg was this pagan festival to, to put this hope out there. And again, the Christians say, hey, feast of the presentation, we will absorb that and Christianize it. And that's one of the reasons that Candlemas it, that it is one of the nicknames for the feast. Because in this dark time of the year, When they have no electricity, those of you who have yet to been to church are awaiting a fantastic meditation on light. And they brought the candles to church because it's so dark and they were blessed on this particular day. So that's why the nickname for the Feast of the Presentation is also Candlemas. And they will be blessed here and candles are a big deal of what we do. These are images that Mark has taken of our candle. And I want to, for a moment, let's talk about the spirituality of this feast. As I think we should. Because I think it goes with our talk about the virtues. You are lighting your candle here. What does this symbolize? This symbolizes your prayers. And we are not here to light our own fires. You may have just come out of our concluding celebration in church, and it says, may we who share Christ's body live his risen life. If you have taken that bread into your body or will, it's not your life anymore. (laughs) You are living his risen life. And so when we think about these candles, think about this candle when we pass the, you don't, on, when we celebrate with candles, you don't light your own. You don't bring out, no, you get your light from the Christ candle. You are living his risen light. You are shining his risen light. That's one way to think about Candlemas. If you go to St. Gregory of Nyssa Church in San Francisco, you will see some very creative iconographical choices in this extraordinary church. And among them is John Coltrane and Ella Fitzgerald, who are canonized. 
and put into this celebration. And the reason we bring this up in the case of Candlemas is because there's an extraordinary story about Coltrane who is just wailing on his instrument in this extraordinary gathering of one another one of his feasts of, uh, well, I call it a feast. It was a celebration of his traditional music. And let me just describe to you from a Tim Keller book what happened. Something happened to Coltrane to, re to reveal his own talents. One night after an exceptionally brilliant performance of A Love Supreme, a 32-minute outpouring of praise to God, he stepped down from the stage and was heard to say by one of his band members, heard him whisper, Nunc Dimittis. So he does such a good job playing. He knows this is the best he's ever done. He says, Nunc Dimittis. These are Simeon's words in Luke 2 after he had seen the promised Messiah. And they mean, I could die happy now. Coltrane claimed to have had an experience of God's love that liberated him from the work for the sake of the work itself. He had been given God's power and had felt God's pleasure. He stopped making music for his own sake. He did it for the music's sake, for the listener's sake, for God's sake. He was done working. That's Simeon. It's another one of my favorite images from a Byzantine fresco of, of Simeon Hold. Why does he want to hold the Christ child? Have you ever given your child to someone who, oh, let me hold him. I just want to. That's what Simeon does. Oh, because he's seen the Christ child and he knows his work is done. He has been attending and waiting for this moment. And so he says, Nunc Dimittis, which in Latin is the first words of the famous words that Luke gives us. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. You can dismiss me now, Lord. You can dismiss me now because I've seen Jesus. And I wonder if we can also say, you are all dismissed, and I am dismissed of my efforts to justify myself, to prove myself, to earn it, to make myself acceptable in someone else's eyes. You are dismissed from that. It's all been done through what Christ has accomplished. And so let's think about that Feast of the Presentation Nunc Dimittis approach that should be especially important to us on this 500th anniversary year of the Reformation when the message of grace bursts through your efforts and my efforts at self-justification. We can be dismissed because Christ has done it all. Let me ask us to pray this prayer together in anticipation of February 2nd. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of the people Israel. You can hear that epiphany resonance, can't you, in that? Also, the light of the Gentiles. I've never heard anyone talk about a nunc dimittis spirituality, but I think there's room for it as we uncover the mysteries and the secrets of this church year. We are in our Virtues and Vices series. We're thick into it at this point. 
We've gone through all of these, and of course, as I pointed out before, they are all on audio if you want to hear these lessons. There's just been an intriguing variety of approaches that have been really conversing with one another in a brilliant way, I think. And you might remember uh, my uh, fitness app um, that says that the ultimate motivation is, I want to live a healthy lifestyle, that's why I should exercise, but the lowest motivation is, oh, I think I should be doing this because you know, someone's telling me I need to exercise. And there are all these different ranges in between. And I just want to, I mentioned that fitness app. I just want to say I haven't used it since I talked about it, okay? <laughs> we, we are generally, our, our programs of self-improvement tend not to go so well. And so I simply want to ask, how has it been going as you think about these virtues? I have my own testimony to share, but has anyone, I mean, what has it done for your soul? Has it helped you? What ways have you been, any testimonials of, hey, this is the week that really put me on my knees. I realized, gosh, you know, I may not be 300 pounds, but I'm a glutton. Or who knows? That's the brilliance of the teaching of gluttony. You can be thin and healthy and be gluttonous. You can be um, poor and avaricious. Works like the Sermon on the Mount. It gets under our skin and realizes, wow, I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. Anybody? Chance to share? I think Lois said when he was talking about suffering. Wasn't that powerful? Yeah. And you don't, he did, and you don't, the thing about Roy's message, you don't choose, I mean, and he and Gosha are going through suffering again right now, and they don't choose that, they don't choose that. And what's so powerful is that the virtues come into our lives most powerfully through suffering, as he suggested, and that is not our own program of self-improvement. And he, from a deep reservoir of personal experience, gave us testimony to that. It was not his self-improvement project, but suffering was the tool that God used. <laughs> this is much less... Well, anybody else? Any, um, no pressure to share, but go ahead. Yes, yes. Right. And that word virtue, arete, is the same word that Aristotle uses for virtue. That shows up in the New Testament. But you might think, it's, it's interesting, that comes from Peter. I don't think Paul, with his emphasis on Christ has done it all, he would have been a little suspicious of that language. There's that Peter-Paul tension that we see recorded in the New Testament. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it shows up there. And Paul instead talks about fruit. This just naturally arises because Christ's done all the work. The Holy Spirit's within you. It just bubbles up. But virtue, hmm, that's a very Petrine suggestion. And I, but it is in there. You cannot deny that this virtue stuff is in the New Testament. That's, what, that's the classic text. Well, for me, is I, you know, this was, I've been enjoying everyone else's teaching. I taught about envy. Envy rests on interpersonal comparison, says our virtue theorists, right? And we are comparison machines, say our contemporary sociologists. Okay, well, that's, that's problematic, right? 
And, um, and, and I remember this slide. Replacing comparison with admiration both diminishes envy and increases happiness. Yay. I just don't be envious. Just admire people. And we're set. And what has floored me, the, I hate this slide. I made it. I hate it because I can't do this. When I taught on envy, this light shined into my life, and I realized, oh, my goodness, that's why I hate that band. Because I'm envious of them. I wanted to, to be the cool musician. And I realized, like, I seriously, I realized I did not like a certain kind of music because of my envy. And I can look at someone else succeeding, and I said, oh, replace it. Admiration. Admiration overcome comparison. But I can't. And I wonder if that's your experience as well. And it, just like the Sermon on the Mount is tended to not say, you can do all this, go ahead and be perfect. It's intended to put you on your knees because you can't. And that is what this has done for me. I'm realizing just how much these vices have, have just percolated into my soul. And it causes me to depend upon Christ, who can be admiring of others through me, live his risen life through me. Go ahead. Uh huh. So, the classes we're talking about, like trying to define what is happiness. And it's been so interesting because I'm finding that it was becoming increasingly like more difficult for me to figure out how am I going to, if we're just even thinking about like what true happiness is, like right. bringing in like the right people. Right. Religious texts and stuff. I mean, right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, what can Gatsby offer you other than a despair? If you try to, and what can F. Scott Fitzgerald offer you other than, I mean, read what Hemingway says about him in A Movable Feast. It was just, he's an alcoholic that's just there going, and he's a miserable man in that novel. Uh, oh, and it, so we can, we can sh maybe the best we can do is show the limitations, but the solution, that has to come from outside of ourselves. That has to come from outside of the system. So what an important way to think about this. We're at the greatest risk to ourselves now because we're now in danger of doing what Maddie suggested in, in our congregation here because we're going into the pagan virtues, right? We're going into the cardinal virtues. We had an extraordinary gratitude kept us on this message of grace so beautifully last week. But now because it's a main fillet of this virtue tradition, we have to talk about prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And these existed apart from the gospel. <laughs> and the Christian tradition is aware of this, and they were a little bit tenuous about these four. This is the Spanish chapel in Florence, it is an extraordinary, one of my favorite places to visit in that city, and I know our 
slides don't show up too well here, but you go inside and you see this wonderful display of Thomas Aquinas presiding over all of knowledge. And he has the apostles, of course, on his left and the right. And we look up here, and there's Aquinas at the bottom, and you can see prudence with a closed and an open book hovering right next to him. And there's justice with a sword and a crown, temperance with Lenten foods, and fortitude that we'll be hearing. We're hearing about all of these, and they're important. And of course, above them is faith, hope, and love. That is our semester. That will take us all the way through May. We're thinking about these with others spliced in. But we wonder and ask ourselves, do these cardinal virtues, these are the theological virtues, the three above, and the cardinal virtues below, the four, and they together make a a convenient seven, do they really have a place for us? According to Joseph Pieper, a famous Catholic writer, in his magnificent book, The Four Cardinal Virtues, he draws upon the tradition. He did not invent this. He's just transmitting it to us. This is the classic understanding of prudence. This is the charioteer of the virtues, the auriga virtutum. That is, the sense that every virtue is, in some senses, controlled by prudence. If you don't have prudence, you won't have any of the other virtues. Really? What about faith, hope, and love? He's going to think about that with us. But nevertheless, the charioteer of the virtues is one way to think about prudence. It informs all the other virtues. When we think prudence, it's not a word that has resonance today. right? We think of, if you're old like me, Dana Carvey and Saturday Night Live making fun of the George Bush elder wouldn't be prudent, right? He, I mean, it, this, prudent, you're like, oh, I, if some, oh, he's so prudent. You're like, oh, so he's a prude? No, 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 I mean that he is, this is a rich understanding of prudence that we're trying to recover here. Prudence, according to Pieper, is knowledge of reality. When you see a young person who throws him or herself into an arena of endeavor without quite understanding what the repercussions will be, we say, well, kind of green. They They need to get some wisdom, right? They lack prudence. That is, and it is knowledge of reality. It's hugely important. That is prudent, which is in keeping with reality. Are you informed about the actual state of the way that God has created the world? Are you prudent? It's the mother and mold of the moral virtues. But, says Pieper, he understands charity, that is love, molds even prudence itself. And so we've, as important as it is to know reality, love is an even higher understanding. You're hearing the traditional way of thinking about this as a Catholic, and it's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And it's part of the Anglican tradition as well. The circumspect and resolute shaping power of our minds, which transforms knowledge of reality into realization of the good. There is a task for you. Transform knowledge of reality into realization of the good. And you can see why the Christian tradition said there are some non-Christians who have this and some Christians who don't, right? There are some, like Cicero, right? He's prudent. Now he ends up getting killed anyway. His hands cut off and his tongue cut off because of the eloquence that he had and his enemies really wanted to rub it in. But he nevertheless had wisdom as a pagan. 
And so he was able to take his knowledge of reality and transform it into a penultimate good. And Pieper doesn't want to let that go. He wants to assimilate that and include that in his Christian understanding. He has an understanding of grace as well. Casuistry, that is, casuistry simply means instead of really thinking about what the situation demands, I'll take out a law book and say, well, you're not allowed to do that. But this is a unique situation. No, sorry, the law book says you can't do that. But no, that's casuistry, refusing to think about a given situation. And so he says, don't be a casuist. That is, look to what law always demands. Casuistry has usurped greater and greater place in moral theology. He's speaking about Catholics. The more the classical tradition of doctrine of prudence has been thrust into the background and has fallen into oblivion. If you are a casuist who is always thinking about what the rule demands, you are not using the gift of prudence to think about what is good in a given situation, which only... Challenges are presented to the 21st century that previous centuries didn't have. We might have to think freshly. That's what he's suggesting here. And the virtue of prudence, another definition. The perfected ability to make decisions in accordance with reality. It's the quintessence of ethical maturity. It has infinite suppleness in the face of the complexities of the ethical life. And oh yes, Thomas Aquinas embodied it. And what it says in his book there at the Spanish chapel, I prayed and was granted prudence. (laughs) And so it's being uplifted is extremely important, and then these things come along and supplement it. That is the understanding. Prudence is the mother and mold, as we said. Faith, according to Jay Wood, who wrote the beautiful essay on prudence at the beginning of the Virtues and Vices textbook that we've been thinking about, faith illuminates our minds so we might believe that which exceeds our ability to demonstrate. Yes, you can be prudent, Cicero, but when God reveals himself to the Jewish people and then reveals himself in Christ, you have more information with which to supplement that prudent knowledge, and that can only come through faith. So we have to bring those two together. This is the way that the tradition has understood it. Christian prudence means the inclusion of new and invisible realities within the determinants of our decision. Yes, it might not be prudent for a young college student to go out and throw him or herself into a dangerous situation for the sake of Jesus. On the world standards, that's not prudent. But in the perspective of faith that might be what God is calling that person to do. And so they've got it all wrapped together. It's really a quite uh, impressive system, the way that prudence and faith go together. But I want to, there's a part of me that just wants to see it all crumble. (laughs) And I say that because as we think again about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we have to understand, as important as it is that we're recovering this virtue tradition, there's a reason that it graded against people in the 16th century. Not in this form that they encounter it. We have to keep that in mind. But I hope we feel some tension as Protestants as we think about this tradition as we move forward. Because, of course, in the King James Version, at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent (laughs) and hast revealed them unto the babes. 
Isn't this foolishness to the Greeks, this gospel? And yes, we might be able to reconcile prudence and faith, but at the end of the day, maybe that reconciliation requires some aggression (laughs) against the have-it-all-together prudent understanding and way of thinking. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Even their virtues were being burned away. This is from Flannery O'Connor's story where a self-righteous woman is given the gift of revelation. And she sees that all of the beggars and the prostitutes are going ahead of her. And then in the back of the line are the righteous people, the Christians. And even their virtues had to be burned away if they were to encounter God. I think that is the, the stark polarity of darkness and light that is one dimension of the gospel that we're at risk of forgetting. Do you remember when we talked about Contarini? He was that Catholic guy who died just after his failed attempt to bring Protestants and Catholics together at the Diet of Regensburg. So tragic. But he is certainly one, maybe one of the few Catholics in this time of deep discord who really understood the Protestant understanding of justification. And remember, I gave you that sheet. This was a while back. I'll remind you of it. He says, the Greeks were capital fools in thinking this this purification could be brought about through habit, the very stuff we're talking about. Man falls down more easily precisely at the point when he thinks he's acquired these virtues. A Roman Catholic (laughs) saying, You cannot do this on your own. You can't get prudence. In fact, you have to be imprudent to even believe in the foolishness of the gospel in the first place. That healthy tension that we need to keep thinking about. We must justify ourselves through the justice of another, namely Christ. We cannot accomplish this on our own. And if it's a gift of prudence, and if it's Christ's prudence, then yes, that we can work with. And that's what Peeper and Jay Wood at their best are trying to describe. But it's such a danger for our own thinking to get in the way. This is what our heritage as Protestants is partly about. Hans Holbein, the great Anglican painter who is working up in England, having been exiled because of the Swiss iconoclasts, he gives us an engraving here. And what do we see in it? We see Christ pointing to the light that, again, we are emphasizing in Epiphany. And who are these people running away? All the pagan people like Aristotle. <laughs> we say, no, 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 bring them back. We can reconcile them. Yes, you can. But at first, there has to be this pushing away. They had been reconciled for too long and the light of the gospel had dimmed and when it flashes forward again, even pagan wisdom is put into the darkness. That is one of the emphases that occurred. And here are the apostles humbly submitting themselves to the light of the word of God. (laughs) If you go to the Stanza della Signatura in Rome, that famous place that Raphael enhanced, you will see jurisprudence, prudence emphasized in one of the medallions. And you see this wonderful wall of all these prudent people. There is prudence above personified with all of her children. So prudent. And below you have Justinian, the great prudent, sort of, emperor of Byzantium who wrote up his law code because he was so prudent. And what does he do? He passes it on to Gregory IX, 
Indeed, a fine pope. And then right above it, you have Julius II, who wants his coat of arms. He wants to be branded right next to prudence. See, I'm prudent. I am the great pope. Here I am. I have mastered this virtue. Raphael, cook up this wonderful thing so that everyone who comes in to sign treaties with me knows that I'm prudent. And why do I mention Julius II? Because he's the guy we kicked off this series with. Julius II is the man who asked the most talented sculptor in the land to give him the biggest, baddest, most beautiful tomb imaginable to be placed right there in St. Peter's Basilica. Praise be to God, it didn't happen. But that's what he wanted. Me at the center of the greatest church in Christendom. And Michelangelo, in his youthful, imprudent arrogance, said, oh, I'll do it, and I'll make it better than you can ever imagine, and his plans were impossible to be realized. And what you see when you see the dying slaves in Rome, you see the scraps from his youthful ambitions, the incomplete book project. And he probably walked by them as everyone admires them and says, what an idiot I was to think I could enhance Julius II with that kind of glory. It would have taken me till I was 200 years old to complete this. And so he gives up on those ambitions. And I had mentioned to you what happened to that tomb. This is San Pietro in Winkele, little off the side church in Rome with the chains that Peter presumably was released from in prison within. There's Peter on our little visit to it, his namesake church. We had to go. And when we visited it as a family, a sort of Protestant pilgrimage in Rome, you might say, there it is. And I mentioned it to you before, but I want to mention it to you again now because it has everything to do with prudence. Because what you see... It's put off to the side of the church, even though everyone goes there to see it now. And Julius II, instead of astride on his war horse, is downcast and as defeated as can be because our projects of self-improvement and self-glorification will fail. And what it has to do with prudence is that that woman to the left of him, left of Moses down there, is supposed to be prudence. And he tells in his official biography people that, yeah, that was prudence that I depicted. And according to the tradition, prudence is to depicted with a mirror because you've got to know yourself and with a serpent because, you know, knowledge of good and evil. What harm could that do? <laughs> How is that working out for any of us? Self-knowledge and the serpent of some degree of cognizance of the world around us, that serpent will coil you up and destroy you. And so Michelangelo, the great sculptor, says that what I depicted was prudence. The flower garland and the mirror represent prudence. That's what he says. But what it actually depicts, if you look at it, as I mentioned before, this figure to the left of Michelangelo is the secret Protestant texts that he was reading in Italy. The benefits of Christ, that illegal pamphlet that was circulating around that was saying to someone who is all about self-justification, you do not have to do it on your own. Christ did it for you. 
And what the figure is actually holding is not a mirror, but the flame. Because it is impossible for a fire to be kindled and not give forth light. This is the faith without which it is impossible that any man can please God. This is a quotation. And what's wonderful about this, it's a mediating position. It's, it's right there. It's the kind of thing that could have kept the Reformation break from happening. Because love is included, right? The fire gives forth light, but the fire is faith and love is the light. They're, they're indistinguishable from one another. It's the kind of stuff it's taken 500 years of ecumenical conversations to get back to. It's right here, but it was then deemed illegal. And he and his friends were persecuted and some of them were killed. And so he had to say, oh, I'm not a Protestant. I'm not involved with the Beneficio Christi. I'm not involved with the spirituality, the circle of reformers. It's just prudence. And so as important as prudence is, <laughs> there's something about the way that faith both fulfills it, but also goes so far beyond it. And that is one of the things we're pondering and thinking about as we wrestle with these mysteries together. We are called to be prudent. God calls us to be prudent. But if that looks like this, we're in trouble. This is actually a life hacker website. I just saw it come up and it said, um, base your pride on your effort, not natural talent to avoid arrogance. And it's about a new book um, talking about the virtue of pride. It's called Take Pride. Forget this virtue tradition. Pride is not a vice. Pride is a virtue. Run with it, and you can do it on your own. If that's what it's about, and that had seeped into Michelangelo's life, then we're in trouble. Don't let it seep into yours either. Please conclude with me with this one more time. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of thy people Israel. Congregational meeting at this time, please join us for that, where we can gather together to think about all the business things that have come up over the last year, and then we'll kick up with the virtues continued the week thereafter. Thank you.